Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Pray, oh God, that you would help us today, God, that you have to minister, Lord Jesus, God, to and through us. Pray, oh God, today grant us understanding, Lord, and lightness. Open up our understanding, Jesus, today. God, will thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. And we know, God, that you're able, Lord God, to minister through your word. God, and grant us, Lord Jesus, strength, God, for the days to come. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen and amen. The church say amen. Amen. It seems like here lately I just keep getting up here sooner and sooner. So I, I'm, I'm taking it that that's because everybody wants me to go longer and longer. Because it seems like I get up here pretty quick uh, anymore. So I guess that means I need to take a long time. So just settle in tonight. Amen. Tonight I want to talk about along this subject line. And because there's two, two when I say two parts, I'm not meaning I'm making this into a two-parter. I mean, there's two sections of this this evening I want to talk about. I want to talk about the times, times of the Gentiles and the fiery furnace this evening. And first of all, the times of Gentiles. And as I talk about that, we are to a certain extent casting our eyes over our shoulders to uh, chapter number two. But in the past three lessons or so, we had been in chapter two of, of Daniel and we had looked at that time frame once again. And, and for anybody that's jumping down the middle of this, I'm so sorry uh, some of this may or may not make sense to you, okay? I'll say that from the go because we're kind of tongue and grooving uh, with lessons that are, are previous. But nevertheless, and then we look at the time frame uh, that stretched all the way, if you remember, that idol that, that, or the idol, the image that was created all the way from the Babylonian Empire all the way through, through, if you will, the rapture of the church even until the second coming uh, of Christ whenever he'll come and set up his millennial reign upon this earth and his millennial kingdom this time frame that that idol uh, that image might I say represented is all times recorded in scripture as being the times of the Gentiles you'll hear that terminology uh, if you ever listen to anybody a prophecy or of that matter you'll hear somewhere along the way that terminology times of the Gentiles Luke chapter number 21 and verse number 24, you say, well, that's not Daniel. That's all right. Uh, we have passages of prophecy in the New Testament as well. But in Luke 21 and verse 24, the Bible says, and this is uh, Jesus here replying. He says, they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. He's speaking of the Jews. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled again the times of the gentiles began with the babylonian exile with king nebuchadnezzar in babylon and that gentile domination if you will continued then with the next empire the medo-persian empire and then with the next empire the grecian empire then the next one the roman and then the next one uh, which is even around our present day the revived roman empire that we're still waiting on everything uh, to come together and come to full fruition but when jesus spoke these words in luke chapter 21 i apologize on my powerpoint tonight i didn't have enough time uh, with all this stuff going on, my phone has been lit up like a Christmas tree. I'm here to tell you right now. 
without the music though, I'm here to tell you. And when Jesus, whenever Jesus spoke these words in Luke 20, 21, and he spoke those, they were prophetic. Whenever Jesus spoke those word, words in the New Testament, they were prophetic. They were still something that was yet to come to pass. Whenever he used the word they, he was speaking of the Jews. He's saying the Jews would fall by the edge of the sword and they would be led away captive into all nations. There would be a disbursement even in his day that would happen in the future very soon of the Jews being scattered and dispersed around about. And that indeed happened along the time of New Testament Scripture. Somewhere around, and I don't, I don't get, I hope you know throughout the say this, I don't get too hard fast on these ADs or BCs because a lot of that is just theory, all right? It's hard to land a real solid date for things. But somewhere around 70 AD, there was a Roman general by the name of Titus that came into Jerusalem, ransacked the, the temple of Jerusalem and Jerusalem itself. And so the trampling that Jesus spoke of uh, started even in his day then and, and the trampling of the Gentiles would continue, the scripture said, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled or until the time of the Gentiles would come to the end. Now we know from our last chapter that the times of the Gentiles has not come to an end yet because the part iron, part clay feet has not yet come to full fruition. It's not yet totally taken place. So we know from our study that Gentile rule or dominion uh, is continuing and has not come to a full end as it would be as yet. And although that time of the Gentiles did start with Nebuchadnezzar as being the king, it will continue. I must emphasize it will continue all the way up until the second coming of the Messiah. And whenever I say, whenever I mention the second coming of the Messiah, I'm not talking about the rapture. I'm talking about whenever he comes and sets up his kingdom here on earth. All right? Amen, the rapture will predate that. But whenever he comes and sets up his kingdom upon the earth. See, when a rapture takes place, we're going to meet him in the air. Whenever he comes in the second coming, his feet's going to land here on the earth, on the mount of God. Amen, whenever he sets up his kingdom. But ultimately, the end of the time of the Gentiles, whenever it's fulfilled, will be that time that we learned of in chapter 2 where that stone that is cut without hands will come and smite the image and it will become a great mountain and fill all of the earth. But during that times then of the Gentiles, those Gentiles will have domination over particularly the nation of Israel. There will be no descendant of David sitting on the throne during that time frame. Because see, that's what happened back at Babylon. Uh, Jerusalem dissolved as we knew it Judah dissolved as we knew it there was still a people but they were just somehow absorbed into a Gentile nation and so there's no king sitting on the throne this is very interesting brother M.L. Walls right in Indiana uh, he stated these words and they're so true speaking concerning the Jews and, and we need to understand this a little bit he said dispersed for centuries among all the nations without a national center capital government flag or rallying point secular or religious she was never absorbed by the nations nor did she ever lose her identity or national peculiarities and characteristics and we have the unique spectacle of a nation without a king government or land retaining its national existence if I boil that down to you this is what brother Walls is saying the Jews didn't have a nation, didn't have a king, no government or authority. They were among another people, but they never lost their identity. 
They were around a bunch of Gentiles, had a lot of influences to sway them or go another direction, but they kept their identity. And so as the old Israel of old did that, so likewise we as the church should retain that for our day that we should live in but not of and maintain our... If they could do that as a nation, we should be able to do that as God's called out people. It's amazing. They didn't have the government, didn't have a king, didn't have a land that they could call their own, but they stayed true to their characteristics and identity in the Lord Jesus Christ that was first ever embedded in them. The Bible says in Hosea, chapter number three, another prophetic book, and verse number three, and I got a lot of, we got about 15 scriptures to run through here this evening. Well, we'll, we'll frolic because I got a lot of time. And I said unto her, speaking of Israel, listen, this is prophetic. I said unto her, Israel, thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot. Thou shalt not be for another man. So will also be for thee. For the children of Israel shall abide, look, many days without a king. And she did, is, is, even. And without a prince and without a sacrifice, the temple's demolished. Can't do no sacrifices or oblations or anything there. And without an image, without an ephod, sure, the high priestly robes and all that, come to a silence. And without teraphim, afterward, verse 5, shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. By implication, what is being stated here is that there will be a time that Israel, though dormant maybe had been dormant, will become active again. And she will have a temple again. And she will have sacrifices again. And her allegiance will be to the God of heaven. All times, if you will, throughout Scripture, but particularly in a couple of places in the Bible, uh, Israel is referred to symbolically as the fig tree. In Jeremiah 24 and verse number 5, the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Like these good figs, speaking of the Jews, the nation of Israel, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah. Those that were carried away captive from Judah were the Jews that went to the Babylonian exile that we've already talked about. The Jews, the nation of Israel, that were carried away captive. So I will acknowledge them that are carried away captive. He says these are like good figs. He's making a comparison to them as figs that are part of a fig tree. Whom I've sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldees, that's Babylon, for their good. So whenever, listen now, the context of the, the setting of Scripture that we're about ready to read the disciples in the New Testament of Matthew 24 is asking Jesus some questions. What shall be the sign of your coming? Uh, what, what will be the sign of the end of the world? And Jesus, in giving them a lot of signs or a lot of reasons or a lot of answers, providing them several signs, eventually he comes to an illustration about a fig tree. They're asking about how are we going to know the end's going to come? How do we know when the sign of your coming is? He gives them a lot of stuff, but also in that, he includes this illustration of a fig tree coming back to life. The Bible says in Matthew 24 and verse 32, now learn a parable of the fig tree. This is his answer. You want to know about when the end's coming? Learn the parable of the fig tree, which we already learned. He's made symbolism of the fig tree and figs to Jews and the nation of Israel. He says, learn the parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and put it forth leaves, 
We, we know, or you may have heard in the past, a fig tree, whenever it bore fruit, it bore the figs and the leaves simultaneously at the same time. But what's happening here is it's branching out. New life, is, it's blooming again. After a period of dormancy, like through winter, or, or, or however long it took, it's coming back to life again. He says, when this happens, he says, you know that summer is nigh. He says, so likewise, ye, when you shall see all these things that I've just mentioned, and this included, know that it is near even at the doors. So if I could in any certain terms, he said, learn the parable of the fig tree, if I may interject, learn the parable of the Jews or the nation of Israel. When you see it coming back to life, when you see the nation of Israel, whenever you see the Jews, all this coming back together, coming back to life after a period of dormancy, he said, then my coming is near even at the doors. Amen. When all these things happen, when she's coming back to life, when she's reborn, the end is near. Well, I think it was last week when we talked about the European Union. If you'll remember, I told you that Israel as a nation was reborn as a nation in May of 1948. Israel had no nation for all these years from the time back of Babylon until that time there had no nation, had no country. But in May of 1948, she was reborn again as a country. Over, over 2,000 years of not having one, amen, even around the time of Titus, whenever he destroyed Jerusalem and all that, after 2,000 years of that not having the one, here she comes around 1948, and she's reborn. There is not another nation in history that's ever done that. Because they remained a nation, although they, by paper, was not a nation. But they kept their identity. Well, here is Israel now, a nation again. What's happening? It's budding. She's being reborn. He says, when you see that, he said, he said, when you see that, that was 1948. Jesus says, my coming's near, and the end is coming. Someone hear what I'm saying about now. So again, the Bible even speaks about throughout the scriptures the Bible speaks throughout the scriptures about bringing Israel out from the people, gathering them from countries from whence they had been scattered, bringing them back to their own land. You read of this a lot. And yes, there can be a dualism in this. A lot, Ezekiel speaks about this a lot. And yes, he can be speaking about whenever Cyrus would allow them to go back to Jerusalem. But it's, it's a dualism like we spoke of before. It's a prophecy good for then and then, for now and then. And with that being said, whenever we read in Scripture some of these episodes of the Scripture, Ezekiel 38 and 8, for instance, is just a for instance of some of them. He says, after many days, thou shalt be visited in the latter that years. Thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword. He's speaking to the Jews here. And is gathered out of many people. He said, I'm going to bring you back out of all the people you were scattered amongst against the mountains of Israel which have been always waste but it is brought forth out of the nations and they shall dwell safely all of them in other words he says I'm going to call the Jews back home to Israel the, the, the Jews for years some are in the United States some are in various countries all around the world but what has happened over the past several years from 1948 in particular is a regathering of the Jewish people back to their homeland He's gathering them out of those scattered places back to their home, back to their country. He's, notice what he said there in verse number eight. He said, into the land that is brought back from the sword. 
Remember, Jerusalem's been destroyed. Judah's been destroyed on multiple occasions in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. They sustained it by the Assyrians. They sustained destruction by the Babylonians. They sustained uh, destruction by the Romans. But all of this now, she is coming back together. Not only that, if we consider this, if we think about history here just for a moment, I know they don't want to make anybody bored, but history here for a moment. We're not, it's not Alexander the Great, okay. But May 1948, just listen to me, just three years before Israel was reborn as a nation was what we all know it to be the Holocaust. The culmination, the ending, if you will, of the Holocaust where statistically they say about one-third of the world's Jewish population was slaughtered during the Holocaust. The Scripture says, I'm going to bring you back to a land that's brought back from the sword. Three years after the biggest slaughter of Jews probably the world had ever known, a third of them is gone. Three years later, Israel's reborn as a nation. Now that's amazing. That's amazing. Daniel 9, everybody doing okay? Great. Daniel 9 speaks of a time, Daniel 9, I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, speaks of a time when the Antichrist will cause the sacrifice and the oblations in the temple to cease. Now, he cannot cause that to happen if there's no temple where these sacrifices and oblations will be taking place. And so in order for him to cause that to happen, the temple and those sacrifices and oblations have to be reinstated. Before he can remove them, they got to be reinstated. Amen. All right. Now there, you, you, Jerusalem. You know, there's the Temple Mount over there. They have a, a Muslim mosque that's setting in that vicinity and area right now. But there is no temple that is rebuilt as of yet. However, the Temple Institute that was founded in 1987 in Jerusalem has, for the past several years, been recreating all the furniture of the original temple. They already got the laver recreated. They already got the table of shoe bread recreated. They're recreating the priestly garments of old. What's happening? They're getting ready so that when they can rebuild their temple, all the furniture and furnishings are already there. And whenever that happens, the Bible speaks of Daniel, whenever all these sacrifices and oblations and everything's back in proper order, then the man of sin, the Antichrist, will walk in and want to take control and say, let's cease from these sacrifices. Well, they're in the process of making the furniture now. Israel's a nation ever since 1948. There's a gathering of the Jews back home even as we speak. Jesus says, my end's near. It's coming. Insomuch, I just read here today in April 2013. Everybody say this year. This year. year. Uri Ariel, who is the housing and constructor minister for the Jewish people, he called for a third temple to be rebuilt he says we built many little little temples referring to synagogues he says but we need to build a real temple on the temple mount that was according to the times of israel july 5th 2013 just this year so the guy that's over the housing and construction minister of the jews says boys we need to get serious about building a temple we're getting the furnishings right but we need to get the temple constructed now here's the difficulty. The temple right now, Temple Mount, uh, the mosque there of the Muslims, all this is under a Muslim control, not under Jewish control, under Muslim control. I don't know what's going to happen, but I see there's some big heads that's going to butt here in the future. 
between the Jews and the Muslims because the Jews are only going to reconstruct their temple where it was constructed before. So when all this stuff's happened, does anybody see anything? You know, I can't tell you the day or the hour that he's coming. But what I'm trying to do is tell you what the weather's like. What the season is like. When we consider so the times of the Gentiles, when we talk about the times of the Gentiles, we, uh, we must be careful not to confuse it with the term the fullness of the Gentiles. Two, two different terms. You have the times of the Gentiles, you have the fullness of the Gentiles. Times of the Gentiles, referring to that time frame from Babylon all the way to the second coming of Christ. The fullness of the Gentiles referring to the church. In Romans chapter number 11 and verse number 25, the Bible states these words, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. And that's what happened. When Christ first came, he was coming for the Jews. But whenever they rejected him, what did he do? He turned to the Gentile. And he has been turned to the Gentile for a long time now. Amen. And it's reaching out trying to save people by virtue of the church. He says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. In other words, until all that he's going to get into the church, into the church, and then he'll turn his direction and attention back to the Jew. Mm -hmm. Until the church has its fulfillment and the church is raptured out here, his concentration is toward the Gentile, but when the church is gone, his attention is back to the Jew. So right now, in the time in which we're living, God is visiting us. We're the Gentiles. I don't know any of us are Jewish among here, but we're all Gentiles. And uh, his, his objective is to take a Gentile bride, which is the church. And we are the fullness, if you will, of the Gentiles. The Bible says in Acts 15, verse 14, just roll with me, Brother Ty. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to do what? To take out of them a people for his name. What's that talking about? It's talking about the church. Talking about the church. And we're living in the church age, which I said before, wasn't necessarily literally revealed unto Daniel. But it's during this time that God has taken out a people from the Gentiles for his name. And whenever this ends and the church is raptured again, he'll turn his attention back to Israel. Now, Warren Wiersbe said something very interesting, or he made some connections in Scripture, I should say. That was interesting. Whenever you look at the book of Judges, when we look at the book of Judges, we understand everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. The book of Judges was the time of the, come on, help me here, Judges. I know that was difficult for you. We'll get there. This time of Judges. In other words, they had no king. It was the time of no king. But in 1 Samuel... Here is the people wanting a king. Saul fulfills that position in Israel. And so 1 Samuel then is the book where we go from no king to man's king because it was at the will of the people that they really desired this. 2 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel, Saul goes off the line, David comes up on the throne, a man that was after God's own heart, if we might say God's king. No king. Man's king, God's king. The world today is living in the book of Judges because there is no king in Israel. There's no king in Israel. She's been without king for a long time. There's no king in Israel. But when presented with the rightful king, 
in the New Testament, when they were presented with the rightful king, and Jesus was born in the major, and he grew up when they were presented with him, they said in John 19, 15, they said, we have no king but Caesar. We don't have a king. The only king there is around here is of Rome, and he's Caesar. So if we are living in the time of no king, and we follow the pattern of the judges for Samuel, 2 Samuel, the next segment of time is then an agenda of man's king. The Antichrist. Living in a time of no king, then will come man's king, the Antichrist, who's going to usher us into a world of right control and satisfy our chaos. Yeah, right. But what happened in Daniel after all the kingdoms were done and the rock that came and hit the idol? Uh huh. And that stone became a mountain, came another kingdom. God's kingdom. Right now, time no king, coming day, a time of man's king. But in the end, it's going to be God as king. And he'll establish his kingdom. Now wait. Consider here for a moment. Because I don't want to leave the church out of all this. The book of Ruth is right there during the period of the judges. And it's in Ruth that we have a love story and a harvest story. (laughs) Right in the time of no king... There's a love story going on and a harvest story. God's people, the Gentiles that he's pulling out for his name, the church, are living in that time frame of the book of Ruth. Because while we share in the harvest, we're waiting also for our wedding day. Hallelujah. Well, glory. Someone say glory. Glory. Well, that that was almost exciting. That's almost. Now, if I can transition here for a moment from looking at times of the Gentiles and let's consider Daniel chapter number three we're really going fast through the book of Daniel Daniel chapter number three this is probably by and large one of the most noteworthy chapters that anybody knows anything about saved or unsaved because if I say have you ever heard the story about the three Hebrew boys that was thrown in the fiery furnace there's going to be a lot of people that's going to be able to say yeah I've heard about that I heard that as, in, in, as a kid in Sunday school if our Sunday school kids better know that you know? but if you're ever going to yeah they could probably come up here and tell us about it. Sunday they did it see point proven point taken so that this is a very commonly known passage the Bible says in Daniel 3 and verse number 1 Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now we must rehearse just a tidbit. In the closing of chapter number two, if you'll remember, it appeared as though Nebuchadnezzar was giving honor to Daniel's God. You remember that? Uh, Because he had given the dream and the interpretation, so he was quite flattered by that. And so he was giving honor to Daniel's God. However, it doesn't look like Nebuchadnezzar in that moment traded all of his because he's polytheistic he didn't trade all of his multiple gods at that time for the one true God but you know when you're a polytheist you can just add another God to your list (laughs) amen and so rather than just discounting all those and taking the one true God it's almost as though Nebuchadnezzar recognized God and just added him to the list of gods that he already had you know what's one more you know whatever you got oh never mind y'all's just a stick in the mud come on liven up a little bit 
Just add one more, you know, to the list. And so that seems to be what, what happened. Uh, so the actions then in the closure of chapter 2 concerning the king Nebuchadnezzar isn't so much so that he was converted. I don't want you to think that. Uh, he wasn't converted. He just gave recognition uh, to the one true God. And I don't know. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of discrepancy, a lot of different theories. I don't know how much time has elapsed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, but most do agree that there is some type of interim or segment of time that has elapsed from the ending of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3. And so, since the last time that Nebuchadnezzar had acknowledged God, he's, as we say in modern days, he, he slept a few nights since then, Okay. Uh, he slept a little bit since then. And, and, and so that time then that the dream was given uh, concerning an image of various materials, now he's in chapter number 3, and uh, he understood from the last chapter, chapter 2, let's just go through it just a little bit, you understand that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, Nebi's feeling pretty good about that. I'm the head of gold. That's a good representation of Babylon. That's a good representation of my kingdom. But he also understood that Daniel said another kingdom was going to arise after him that was inferior to his and take his kingdom's place. Well, that put a frowny face on Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, he's kind of sad about that. And so I don't know for certain, okay? I want to underline that. I don't know for certain if the actions that are taking place in chapter number 3 our response to chapter number two or not, it seems to be a little suspicious because now Nebuchadnezzar, by his own doings, is constructing an image. He, not too long ago, you know, a few years back, he had a dream of an image. Now he's constructing the image, but rather than it being the various metals, it's of one metal. It's all entirely of gold. It's not a progression uh, going to lesser value and greater strength. No, it's all of gold from the top all the way down to the bottom, amen, which is quite, quite fitting since uh, Daniel said, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, and gold represented Babylon well. Now, if, 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 I don't know, again, I don't know if there's any correlation, but if this is attack against the dream that was revealed in chapter 2, the king then is declaring with his new-made image, Babylon's going to rule forever, and we're going to have a never-ending kingdom of Babylon around here. And it's going to stand and there's no other kingdom that's going to be over overpower us and succeed us. This image the Bible speaks of was three score cubits high and six cubits in breadth. Or if you will, a score is 20, so three score, that would be 60. It's 60 cubits high and six cubits in breadth. Now, uh, they say that a cubit used to be from like a person's elbow to their middle finger. Now, do you all know that you're all not the same size from the elbow to your finger? All right, so the cubit could change. In Israel, the cubit was typically about 18 inches, but in Babylon, it was about 20 inches. And so if that's the case, this image then stood about 100 feet tall and 10 feet wide. Kind of lanky thing, isn't it, you know? <laughs> 10 feet tall. Well, if, you remember, if you've ever seen some of those hieroglyphs, even the statues that they made are kind of lanky. They're kind of thin and real tall. But it's kind of a, a lanky thing, 100 feet, 100 feet tall and 10 feet wide. Now, what's interesting, it was 60 cubits. It was six cubits wide. See, this is different than a day. We use what we call a decimal system based upon the 10 factor. Babylon was notable to use the sexagismal system, which is based upon the number six. Six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. 
Six, a man must work six days and then he must rest and worship on the seventh. P.G. Temple, in his book, Understanding Daniel Revelation, says this, the number six, multiples thereof are used in occult circles. Often it has evil or sexual connotations. He says hex is the Greek word for six and sex is the Latin word for six. Now this is just, listen to me. It's no surprise then because we see then the measurements of this in cubits is 60 cubits by six cubits. It's no surprise then in the book of Revelation that we see this human system will have a number of the bees, 666. I want to draw your attention though to Revelation 13 verse 18. The Bible says, here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beasts for it is the number of man and his number is 600. And this is just interesting. It, it don't, okay, this is just one of those things you just pick up on. You know, three score. The image was three score cubits high and six, six cubits wide. Man, I don't, that don't mean squat anything, but it's just interesting. But nevertheless, this sixagismal situation is still, in fact, a factor of six is involved in both of these. And so as the story goes, he has this image, and King Nebuchadnezzar gathers together all of his high-ranking officials for the dedication, of course, the ribbon-cutting, if you will, of this image. And the command is given, and you all could probably just, maybe I should sit down and let someone tell this part of the story. Would this be fun? Okay. Uh, the command is given that whenever the music, and he names the different instruments, and then he says all the music, just sums it up, is played, that all the officials are to fall down and worship the image. And if not, what was the consequence? Someone help me. See, we could have some real interaction here tonight. Be thrown into the burning, as Scripture says, burning, fiery furnace. Yeah, they couldn't just call it a fiery furnace. It had to be a burning, fiery furnace. And so in chapter 3, we see a common thread that's woven throughout here because there's a lot spoken about worship in chapter number 3 and this concept of worship. Now consider, Nebuchadnezzar has just conquered a bunch of different places. Mm -hmm. He's increasing his kingdom. He's conquered a bunch of different places. He's added them bishop to his empire. And so what does he want? He wants there to be a unity among his people. He wants to consolidate them together. And you know what Nebuchadnezzar sees? He sees religion and worship as a great tool to bring people together. Uh-huh. And it's the same effort that we will see exerted in the last days. A political system that will use religion as the welding force for binding the people and nations together through and by religion. Now consider, he's not no dummy. This really makes good sense, folks. I'm going to gather all my top leaders together that no doubt have people under them. I'm going to get all my top leaders together. I'm going to have them bow and worship. And whenever I win them over to this, undoubtedly they will turn around and the people that are under them, they will win over to them. They will have sway with the people. So if I can get my leaders to do it, they will have sway with the people that follow them. Let me say something. In this last days, let me tell you, the reason why you're going to see such a big attack on pastors is because the world system is trying to get the leaders 
to bow and to worship into whatever degrees of false doctrine that there could be. Because if it gets the leaders, that has sway then on the people that they lead. If they can get their influence and their voice, they will soon have the people they instruct. So pray for me. Honestly, that's a good reason to pray for your pastor. Pray for me. Because I'm a target. i got crosshairs on me right now. Daniel 3 and 5, the Bible says that at, this is what it particularly said, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, fall, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, have set up. Look at that scripture, will you? This sets, although it's toward an image, although it's in a wrong context, the principle is good. He says, at what time you hear the sound, if I can just all say, at what time you hear the sound of the music, fall down and worship. The context is wrong, but the principle is good. That whenever the music starts, let worship commence also. It's a good pattern for worshipers. When the, when the worship band plays, amen, then they were to worship. Amen, that's a good pattern to fall in the church. Whenever all that begins, it's a good time to worship the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. It sets a stage, an opportunity for us to worship the Lord our God. And I'm not trying to be too punny here, but here's a musical note for us tonight. Listen, I think this portrays it. Not all and just any kind of music is acceptable. Because it doesn't all bring glory to God. Some is meant to bring honor to other gods. So this situation, well, there's really no harm. You better see what it's trying to bring honor to. Matthew Henry said it like this. He said, there is nothing so bad which the careless world will not be drawn to by a concert of music or driven to by a fiery furnace. So the platform here, the platform is worship. Amen. It's worship the image. This is what he's saying. Worship the image or die. (laughs) Got a lot of options on the table here. Worship the image or die, which isn't going to be much different than in the last days. There's an image of a beast in the book of Revelation that's going to desire worship as well. And not worshiping it means you're going to be killed. See see what's happening to the book of Daniel? It's just more than a story. It is a platform for things still even yet to come. Revelation 13 and verse 14, the scripture that I referred to is here. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. Look at the next verse. And he had power to give life into the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause, that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. There it is again. 
here is the game plan. Here's the options. You either worship the image of the beast or you find death. In Daniel, right here of Nebuchadnezzar, in his image, it's you fall down and worship when the music is played or you meet the fiery furnace, you die. Now, when all this took place, everybody's bowing and prostrating themselves and giving homage. But there's three Hebrew boys standing firm. And there's some Chaldeans that take note of these three boys and they bring this of what they're not doing, should I say, to the attention of the king that they did not fall down and they did not worship the image whenever the music was played. And they accused these three boys, namely of three things, that they did not have any regard for the king, they said, and that they did not serve King Nebuchadnezzar's gods and that they did not worship the golden golden image. And so these three Hebrew boys are literally brought to the king and questioned on all of these accounts except their regard for the king. Nebuchadnezzar never says anything about them not having no regard for him. He does question them concerning not serving his gods and not worshiping the golden image, but he never says anything about them not having regard for the king because think, I know, but think with me for a moment. Their presence alone at the dedication service should show that they had a regard for the king. All right? Their service to the kingdom, because they served in a pretty good rank in the kingdom, their service to the kingdom shows their regard for the king. Let me say it like this. They had a regard for the king as long as his commands did not make them transgress the commands of God. And that is our stand in this day. That is our stand with the government of this day. That is our stand with the laws of this institution. We, we are supposed to respect the governing bodies. New Testament scripture tells us. Those that have rule of us are supposed to do that. The only time that that would be incorrect is whenever their law transgresses God's law. God wins out. And we'll come to a day that will be tried in the lives of people that may be here. All right? And so, if we look at the beginning of verse 15, look at it now. So, you got verse 15 for me, buddy? Nope, we're in Daniel. Daniel chapter number 3, verse 15. The Bible says, so he understands that they didn't bow the first time. And so they've been brought, they've been questioned. Now listen to the wording here at the very beginning. He's talking, Nebuchadnezzar is talking to these three, and he says, now if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the, what is he telling him? The king is going to give the three boys a second chance at falling down and worshiping. Listen to me, folks. It's amazing how thoughtful temptation is. It's amazing how thoughtful temptation is. It'll give you another chance to do wrong if you didn't do it the first time. It'll give you another opportunity. But you know what these three told the king? They said, we're we're not careful to answer thee, O king. In other words, we don't need another chance. We've already made up our minds. Just like Daniel in the first chapter, remember, coming with the king's meat and his wine, the Bible said that Daniel had purposed in his heart. He already had his mind made up before the question was ever prompted. Here are these three boys. They're comrades of Daniel's. They said, hey, we don't need another chance to sin. We already got our minds made up. Don't play the music. Stop the music now. We're not going to bow. We're not going to bend. 
Bishop M.L. Wall said it like this. He says, if we have to have time to make up our mind whether we are against something that is so obviously wrong, then we do not have the conviction we think we have. In other words, he's saying if you've got to take time to think about something that is absolutely wrong, you don't have the convictions you think you have. There should not have to be a thought process to it. That's what Bishop said. Bishop Walls, that is. Daniel 3, verse 17. The Bible says, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, that's important three words in Scripture. Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Everybody say, but if not. But if not. Those are important words, not just for Daniel here in the book of Daniel. These are important words for life. These are important words for Christian life because I think sometimes we're sucked into a mindset. Mm -hmm. We're sucked into a mindset. Many times... We're willing to obey God and stand fast if we think it's going to come out right. Or if we think it's going to come out favorable. And then if God does not come out, or if it don't come out as we planned for it to come out, but we consider right, good, and proper, we get bitter and angry at God. See, commonly we say, well, if God doesn't save us from the fire, he'll save us in the fire. I'm here to tell you sometimes it might be God's will not to save you at all. I'm talking about hard knocks of life. Because a lot of people want to get real gruff when God, when certain things happen and take place. It's like we prayed and we prayed and God didn't deliver and that person went on and died. But if not, didn't say anything about God's ability it says everything about God's sovereignty I'm not saying that's easy and I'm not saying if it came knocking on any of our doors it would be easy but although John the Baptist was doing God's will following God's call preaching the gospel in the desert before he ever arrived he ended up jailed and beheaded but it was God's will and he might have been wavering a little bit whenever uh, Jesus had to send the disciples back to John and said, blessed is he that's not offended in me. Had to reinstate that, but if not, John. I, I'm, I, I, he could have got him out of prison, no, no problem. Could have saved his head, no problem. But that wasn't the will of God. Amen? Deuteronomy 29, 29, I believe I've shared this verse before. I know I have with people that's in those times because there's things that happen that we just don't understand. I, there's verses that, let me tell you, as a pastor, whenever you read your Bible on a daily basis, you come by verses that answer the hard questions that people ask. Let me tell you, you write them down and you store them. <laughs> Deuteronomy 29, 29, the Bible says, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. The secret things, the secret things, those things we don't understand. Those things that to us seem mysterious, they belong to God. He knows the answer, folks, to every why, but he's not obligated to share that with me. They belong to God. Consider a few of these mysteries of life and even of Scripture. In Acts chapter number 12, Apostle James was killed with the sword. 
And in the same chapter, Peter was miraculously delivered from prison. Why? Hezekiah asked for and is given 15 more years of his life. Yet also in Scripture, we see Rachel dies at childbirth on her way to Bethlehem. Why? One man gets cancer and dies at 42. Another lives to be 85. Why? One child does well and another struggles all his life. Why? Just think. One family knows prosperity and it seems to have it made while another can barely make ends meet. And I know there can be legitimate answers why to this, but why? Your friend is promoted while you're passed on over. Not getting the promotion, yet you do better work than they do. Why? One male dies while he's working out and the little girl's run over by a car, jumps up with nothing but a few scratches and bruises. Why? Two soldiers go to war, only one comes back home. Why? One child is born healthy, another is with serious handicaps. Why? Some prayers are answered, some that seem like never get answered. Why? Because, but if not. It's difficult to find that place, but as Christians, we somewhere along the line got to find that place. But if not. Or we'll shake our fists sometimes at God in vengeance when he doesn't answer, although we prayed and we fasted and we did all this stuff. But if not. I know it's real somber right now, isn't it? I'm sorry. Amen. I heard a message a long time ago, and it's very true. And I think you'll find it true for your own life that it takes faith to wait on the answer, but also it takes faith to live without ever an answer arriving. Author unknown, he stated these words, and this is a, this is a, this is a horse peel here for swallowing. But he says, when the servant of God can do nothing else he can at least die like a Christian and that's a big one he can't do nothing else he can at least die as a Christian now let's go back to Daniel and everybody get lighthearted again right Um, for one thing God must have thought an awful lot about those three Hebrew boys really must have because the Bible says in Proverbs 17 and verse number 3 The fining pot is for silver, and the furnace for gold. But the Lord tried the hearts. Bishop, I think he thought thought quite a bit of them because the furnace was for gold. He must have thought them pretty precious. And as a result of their reply to the king that no matter if you play the music again or not, we're not serving your gods and we're we're not going to bow to the image, what does he do? He has the furnace increase what? How many times? Seven. There we go. Thank you. You guys had some good Sunday school teachers. I'm so proud of them. Seven times hotter. And then we note verse number 20. This struck me today. Okay, this just jumped out and hit me upside the head today. The Bible says in verse 20, and he, Nebuchadnezzar, commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the furnace. Why couldn't any old Joe just do that? Why was it the most mighty men? Can I just tell you what hit me in my head today? Because God's children are such a threat to this world and our adversary, the devil and this world system, that they're conspiring to have the most mighty men handle God's children because you're a threat to your surroundings, folks. 
you child, blood, Holy Ghost filled people are a threat. They're not just going to send anything. They're going to send the most mighty because they realize the power invested in you is greater than anything they ever experienced. And the Bible says that they went in bound and they came out loosed. We oftentimes heard preach that that fire, the only thing that the fire burned was the things that bound them. The only loss that they suffered was what the world had bound them with. Otherwise, the Bible says they had no smell of smoke on their clothes, which God set that up anyway because usually when a person was executed, they stripped them down naked before executing them. But they went in fully clothed with their turbans and all this. Read it in Scripture because he was doing this in haste. Nebuchadnezzar was mad. and Whenever you're mad, you become a fool. (laughs) Scripture bears it out. Where you become mad, you become a fool. And so he did something in haste. So he, but God used that for his glory. Not even their clothes had the smell of smoke. There was no hair on their body that was singed. The Bible says there was no alteration in their garments. They didn't get no free alterations while they were in the furnace. Amen. In this episode, the fire brought them. The fire brought them freedom. But look, it also brought them fellowship with God. The fire did. The test of the fire brought them freedom and it brought them fellowship with God. I like what Ray Pritchard said in his series. He says, you can do the math for yourself. He said, outside there were three, inside there were four, and outside there were three again. He says, Jesus never manifests himself except inside the furnace at the very moment when he was needed. So you didn't see Jesus on the outside. He was where the fire was. Fret not. He'll manifest himself if you find yourself in the fire. Amen. And so the story ends, and I'm, 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 I'm really doing good here. I'm, I'm proud of myself here. The story ends, not that I'm doing a good job, just trying getting through the material here tonight, okay? I hope I don't have to qualify everything I'm saying. Lord, help. If you only knew. The story is coming to a close then of chapter 3 and it's shifting from look, look what happened. The focus has shifted for the chapter. It begins with this golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has created this 100 feet tall, 10 feet wide image that's made of gold. This is where everybody's supposed to have their focus. They're supposed to be worshiping this, bowing down to that but now since everything that's occurred the focus has shifted from the golden image now to the creator of all things the God of heaven and the Bible particularly speaks that the same officials that Nebuchadnezzar had called together for the worship and the bowing to the image he created now are witnessing what has happened to Shadrach or hasn't happened should we say what hasn't happened to Shadrach Meshach and Abednego now these are all throughout his provinces all out his empire don't you know they got to go home with a story to tell the family and loved ones so where he might have wanted them for influence of his image uh-huh, to sway their people because of what God did in that episode, there's going to be something else propagated when they get home. There were three boys thrown in the front. There's not a hair on their head. And it was just a testimony, testimony, testimony. It was something horrible. But look at the testimony that proliferated the region and the empire, the empire because somebody went through a test. Now... I've got just a little bit more to say, but not too much more. Again, Nebuchadnezzar, he's recognizing God. 
He did that at the close of chapter 2. He recognized God. Again, it doesn't seem as though Nebuchadnezzar, though, is making God solely his God. Yet, he doesn't want anybody speaking against that God. Because if they did, there's some consequences. We're going to catch you up. <laughs> now notice, in the closure of this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are promoted. This seems to be a little thing going on here. Daniel, in just eating the pulse, and them going through the schooling and showing themselves to be almost ten times wiser than anybody else, the Bible says, as a result, they stand before the king. There's a test. After the test, there's promotion. We see then in chapter number 2 that Daniel, after dealing with the ordeal that none of the other wise men could do, and they told the king the dream and the interpretation, you know what happened to him after the test? Promotion. Now in chapter 3, the three Hebrew boys go through their test. And there's promotion. i got good news for you. If you find yourself in the middle of a test right now, on the backside of it is a promotion for you. So while you feel the heat of the fire, just keep telling yourself, on the backside of all this is a promotion. Hallelujah. Stand with me tonight. Folks, we are actually going to leapfrog into chapter number four next week. I want you to know we just went through a chapter and kind of dabbled around chapter 2 tonight. But don't expect this every Wednesday now, okay? Amen. But we're going to get into chapter 4 and see what happens with Nebuchadnezzar and what takes place. Amen. Can we bow our heads in this place this evening? Hallelujah. Let's Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.